Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. I do encourage you to come back this afternoon for the uh, um, graduation at 630. Um, Theoretically, since Stephen is in charge of it, it won't go three and a half hours. I think there's a reason Stephen is in charge of the graduation, and I'm not. I do apologize to you for how long the meeting went, the congregational meeting, and uh, we are putting in place things to make sure that the children in the future are not going to have to be in the nursery so long, and I will do a better job of preparing for those meetings. So thank you for loving me and my sins and failures, and by now my failure of time is pretty old, but it has gotten better in the elders meeting, you know, sometimes old, old dogs can at least act as if they're able to learn new tricks, but spilled some, excuse me. Now this morning, um, I'm going to preach a chapter of the book, and the chapter is about the jealousy of God. And this is very, very hard for us. I know that. That's why I write it. I'm I'm getting depressed about the book. And the reason is, in the book, I'm writing about the things we don't want to hear. And that's not how you sell books. And so when I listened to it, my my son-in-law taught me this wonderful trick. You can, like, double-click on an email... And then you can listen to it, and I never knew that. So if you have an iPhone, but probably an Android, you can just go boom, boom on it, and then you can select speak, and this woman that doesn't know the difference between L-I-V-E live and L-I-V-E live (laughs) will begin reading to you. But if you wrote it, you probably know what the word is. And so I've been listening to the things I've written, and... I find them very helpful, and that's an, that's an odd thing, but those of you who have taught know that's true, that when you teach, you're, you're really helped. And uh, often you learn things when you, when you teach. Uh, and one of the things I'm learning is that we are so um, coddled. And if you don't know the word coddle, you need to know the word coddle because it is the perfect word to describe the culture of the Western world today. Everything coddles you. Cosseted. Coddled. Cosseted. And what this means is... uh... (laughs) Okay, come here, Brian. Would you come here, please, sir? Mr. Budget Director. Okay, now watch this. You're not going to like it. Are you, are you ready? <laughs> now, the reason I did that is because when you see it physically, a man to a man, it's utterly repulsive. What you don't realize is this is the way you are treated everywhere in everything. 
And what you need to learn is that actually that's, you can make a case for that because you see it a number of times in Scripture where men fall on each other's shoulders and kiss each other and hug. You can't make a case for coddling the people of God. You can't make a case for elders and pastors and older women coddling God's people. And the reason is it just completely lies about the nature of God. And everything we do is supposed to tell the truth about God. Now, the truth about God is his love and his mercy, right? But can we please learn the other part? You know, it's like, you know, it's like, Mommy, I want Twinkies again. Now, I don't want to call God's love a Twinkie, but you get the analogy is the sweetness, okay? And God doesn't just draw us to himself through his sweetness. God draws us to himself with his wrath, his anger, and his justice, and his holiness. And those of you who are Christians, if you're a Christian, you know that's true. You know that it was equal measures God's law and holiness and his love and mercy that drew you to him. And so in the book, I'm always trying to write about the things that you don't want to hear. Because I know nobody else is going to teach you. And a man ought to do the things that God's called him to do. And you know what I'm called to do. I'm called to take you by the scruff of the neck and force you to look at God in the part of his attributes that we hate. And so in the middle of the book, after making the case that fatherhood has been harmed by the fall and our sin, which is not a hard case to make, (laughs) all right, then we come to the doctrine of the fatherhood of God and the sonship of Jesus Christ, and then we move in the middle of the part of the book to the attributes of our Father in heaven. And you know there are many attributes, many perfections of God, right? You know that he's holy, that he's immutable, that he's omniscient, omnipotent, that he's just, that he... And we can go on, and so somewhat arbitrarily, you, you choose which attributes you're going to focus on. And in the book, I'm focusing on the ones that have the most application, as I see it, to what fathers need to hear today. So the first one is God's love. But you can imagine that what I say about God's love is not what we're used to hearing, right? Right? Then I move into God's discipline. Those whom he loves, he disciplines. And so that one you may hear sometime soon. Then I move to the one this morning, which is... Before I tell you what it is, let me say that everybody today thinks that if there's one thing they know about Christians, it's that we believe in family values. The Republican Party depends upon it, right? And so if you look at America and you divide it, there are basically two groups in America, one group that believes it takes a village and one group that believes it takes fidelity in marriage, right? Can you see this? You know, because you have to have some label, you generally call them Democrats and Republicans. But anybody that thinks Republicans believe in fidelity and marriage and the home are just insane. You know, it produces votes, you know, and it's useful, right? Is that okay? All right, okay. I'm an independent, so 
Yeah, yeah, I'm an independent too, but I always vote Republican. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> you know? Okay, and so what we think is that Christians are family values people, and, and then Christians begin to think about fidelity in marriage, marriage, not divorce, not adultery, not pornography, having children, and pretty soon Christians become idolaters. Because God is a jealous God. And his jealousy applies to our families. All right. So now the chapter. Here is the word of God. Would you stand as we read it, please? This is from Exodus 34, verses 10 to 17. Then God said, behold, I am going to make a covenant. If you want, just think of covenant as contract, all right? I mean, it's not the same, but it will help you to sort of demystify the word covenant. All right, I'm going to make a covenant. Before all your people, he's speaking to Israel, I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Now they're coming into Canaan, all right? Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. In other words, all the people of Canaan. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. This is the word of the Lord. Would you be seated? Our God is a jealous God. And this sounds wrong. Jealousy is bad and God cannot sin, right? And yet our God is a jealous God. When Moses was given the law at Mount Sinai, God also commanded his people to destroy the idols of the wicked Canaanites and note his reason. Watch yourself, he says, that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you were to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and cut down their asherim, for you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. The sons of Israel were to keep apart from the Canaanites and destroy their altars and idols, because God's very name is Jealous. And that hits it right on the head, doesn't it? Certainly, there are times when jealousy is wicked, leading men to commit the most terrible sins. Jacob's sons were jealous of their brother Joseph, and it led them to sell him into slavery. The Jewish religious leaders were jealous of the apostles, and it led them to put the apostles in prison. The news this past week 
contained a terrible account of a young man who made a video of his rage over not being able to get girls interested in him. After making the video, he went out and shot men and women made in the image and likeness of God. They died victims of his jealousy. Scripture describes this man, quote, wrath is fierce and anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? It's Proverbs 27, 4. And yet, jealousy is God's very name. And his names are his character. Can't separate God's names from God. Thus, in the second commandment, God explains his prohibition of idolatry, saying, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. In Geneva, they produced a little teaching aid for children that parents would use with the kids where the parent would ask a question and then the child would answer and the parent would ask a question. And in this Geneva Catechism, the question pertaining to the command is, what does he, God, indicate by this term jealousy? And the answer is that he cannot bear an equal or associate. He can't bear an equal. For as he has given himself to us out of his infinite goodness, so he would have us to be holy is. And the word is W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely, utterly, and totally his. And listen to this. And the chastity of our souls... The chastity of our souls consists in being dedicated to him and wholly cleaving to him. God declares, I will not give my glory to another. Jealous for his own glory, God demands our souls be chaste in loving devotion to him alone. We are to guard our hearts against any competitors, and this chastity of soul is the heart of our faith. Here is the text that formed the heart of Jewish faith, and still does. It is called the Shema Yisrael, or the Shema, or the Great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, the Hebrew word Shema is simply an English transliteration of the first Hebrew word of the text, which means hear or listen. And so we could say this text is the great, now listen up, Israel. And the command is given by God. First, they are to listen to his Hebrew name, Lord. You'll see that it's in small caps in your Bible. And at this point, I have a long footnote on what that means. And so you can look forward to reading the footnote. But we're going to keep going. And that's very unusual for me. But just take it as it comes. All right. 
They are to listen to his Hebrew name, Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, and this is the word Yahweh or various ways that it's translated uh, in the Jerusalem Bible, it's translated as Yahweh. In most of our Bibles, it's Lord in uppercase, small caps. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This is the first prayer that's learned by a Jewish child, and practicing Jews repeat this statement of faith in their prayers every morning, every evening. And then after the listen and the confession of God's name and unity comes another command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. In other words, you think your wife is jealous. Your wife has nothing on God. God is infinitely more jealous. He demands absolute first place, we might say super preeminence in our hearts. Now, if I were to talk about our need to apply this to our money and possessions, it would be true but boring. Certainly, yes, the love of money is idolatry and God's jealousy demands we love him and not money. We read Jesus in Luke 16, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. But we hear this all the time. And there's another idol we're rarely warned against today. For a number of reasons, this idol has a much easier time flying under the radar than money and possessions. And the idol I speak of is the idol of the family. Immediately, you see the problem. We can command people not to love money and cars and houses, but we can't command them not to love their fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, their wife or their husband. In fact, just the opposite. By the authority of the word of God, we are to command husbands to love their wives and wives to love their husbands, fathers and mothers to love their children, and children to love and obey their fathers and mothers. Each of us is to love his brothers, and we're to love our neighbors, and so on. Add to these biblical commands the terrible betrayal of family love we live in the midst of today, and we feel the tension. Knowing our own times, biblical pastors, elders, and deacons won't stop exhorting husbands to love their wives, wives to love their husband, children to love and obey their parents, and so on. It should be true of us, what was true of the first Christians, that unbelievers watching them were deeply impressed by the love they had for one another, starting in their homes. This is the great need of our time. The growth of the church demands love and peace in our homes, marriages, and congregations. Nothing is a more potent witness to the cross of Jesus Christ than unbelievers seeing how we Christians love one another. Still, we are not fully biblical until we add to our exhortations to love exhortations also never to put our wives, husbands, fathers, mothers, sons, or daughters in the place of God. Yes, dear brother, dear sister, some sins are worse than others. And one proof of this is that Jesus said the command to love our neighbor as ourselves was the second greatest command. Whereas the command to love God is the first and greatest commandment. 
A Jewish lawyer asked Jesus, Teach, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. We are to love God first and foremost with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. And it is his jealousy for this first and most important love that requires the relegation of our love even for our fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, and wives to an infinitely subordinate place. It is impossible to misunderstand Jesus on this. He put it bluntly, and it's as difficult for us to listen to his words today as it was for his disciples 2,000 years ago. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26. And the Gospel of Matthew gives us a fuller account of this theme, this theme in Jesus' teaching. There we read, For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 35 and following. God will not tolerate our putting our own sons and daughters before him in our honor and our love. Truly Christian family values relegate our own flesh and blood to second place, utterly subordinate to God. And this leads to a constant tension in the Christian father and mother, son and daughter's heart. He is to order his life and everything under his authority to the glory of God. And so when his own wife, sons, or daughters turn and oppose God by their defiance of the Father Almighty, they have made themselves into enemies within his own household. And truth be told, such conflict is much more common than we like to notice. And so what are elders for anyway? Out in the wilderness, the sons of Israel kept Moses so busy with conflict resolution, his father-in-law, Jethro, told him to appoint elders to help him with this work. These men would settle the disputes of groups of 10, 50, 100, and 1,000 with only the most difficult conflicts being brought to Moses himself. And what was the source of the conflicts? Sin. The people fought because of their sins against one another, starting in their own marriages and homes. As with the children of Israel, so with the church. Conflict resolution is what pastors and elders spend their lives doing today. You know, nobody ever thinks about this. What do you think we're doing? Do you think we're going out and picking fights with people? No, people are coming to us with their fights. That's always what elders do. That's pastoral care. Right? What do you think a shepherd does? What do you think a dairy farmer does? What do you think a pig farmer does? What do you think a chicken farmer does? 
You ever heard of the pecking order? Okay, so they were fighting God's people. Today in the church, God's people fight. This is what we do. And it is the job of the elders to keep peace. And don't think that's an unspiritual view of the elders and that when the church is really spiritual, they'll graduate to just handling money and schedules. No. The elders' boards that handle money and schedules have not risen to the level of doing their biblical work, which is to keep peace. Okay? Now, why am I bringing elders into the whole discussion of God's jealousy? Well, now listen to this, okay? I guess you don't have a choice, do you? (laughs) All right. As with the children of Israel, so with the church. Conflict resolution is what pastors and elders spend their lives doing today. We mediate the conflicts of the household of faith, the church of the living God, and those conflicts start in the marriages and homes of God's people where a husband despises his wife for her holiness. Okay? A wife despises her husband for his godly authority. A father hates his son for his call to pastoral ministry, setting aside law school or his well-established engineering profession. A mother hates her daughter for desiring sexual purity over getting established in her profession. A son hates his single mother for making him move out of the house when he's living a life of debauchery. A daughter hates her father for forcing her to have an abortion before he will allow her to return to the university for her second semester. And so on. Every godly father will at various times recognize that Jesus' prophecy is being fulfilled in his own home. And he must choose between God and his wife, God and his son, God and his daughter, and so also mothers, wives, grandparents, cousins, and in-laws must choose. Pastors and elders help souls deal with precisely these conflicts all the time. The unbelieving husband demands his wife stop joining the people of God and worship each Lord's Day. So she goes to the elders of the pastor asking for help with the conflict. What should she do? What about the children? The believing husband demands his wife and children leave their church with him because he's given himself to pornography. The elders have admonished him and now he hates them for it. The wife goes to her elders or pastor asking for help with the conflict. Jesus warned us about this situation, not because we'd never run into it, but because it's a constant in the life of his disciples. In this world, the Christian never stops being confronted with choices between God and man, particularly his own flesh and blood. Yes, nothing is more heart-wrenching, and this is why our master warned us. Which is to say that God's jealousy is scandalous. With much sorrow this past year, we had two more excommunications, one of which was a young college student who had grown up here in our congregation. 
over the course of several weeks, this young man had spoken blasphemy to his parents as well as the pastors, elders, and members of this church. He was intentionally denying the one true God. He made it very clear. After the elders announced his excommunication in Lord's Day worship, you'll remember that I began the sermon by reading the above passage where our Lord forces a choice between himself and our loved ones. And I pointed out that all of us must put God first above every earthly love and power, and that this young man's parents were putting God first by having removed their blaspheming son from their home and standing in agreement with the elders in the decree of excommunication. We prayed for the young man, and everyone here knew and felt the truth that that day was one of the saddest that our church had ever experienced. We would all seek the day when this young man we love might, by the mercy of God, return home, saying with the prodigal son, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. After morning worship that week, one young Chinese grad student was asking a bunch of questions concerning God, truth, right, and wrong in the Bible. People that work with international students, Jason, Josh, Nisha, others of you, had put together a box of Chinese Bibles, and she had been reading one of them. And she had been reading it for several weeks, but that morning it was clear that the morning's worship had set her teeth on edge. It took a while for us to get at the reason, but finally she said something that I was very pleased to hear. She said, quote, I believe in God, and I like reading the Bible, but I don't like Jesus, unquote. Now, why would I say I liked hearing it? <laughs> I've waited my whole life to have somebody speak that truth. You don't like Jesus. You love him. Now, I know we would all say, I love Jesus. Well, yes, that's true. But do you think Jesus was killed because he stepped in front of a semi? I mean, we just went through Palm Sunday reading the whole account in the Gospel of Matthew. Do you remember it? And so here was someone who had not been told that apple pie in America and liking Jesus are, you know, a package deal. And that you should never say in America that you don't like Jesus. And she actually said the truth. And that's why I liked it. That's not offensive. The truth is not offensive. It's hard. And so this is what she said. I believe in God. And I like reading the Bible. But I don't like Jesus. Gently probing her thoughts, it became clear that until she heard Jesus' words requiring her to make a choice between her family and God, she had been inclined to look favorably on the Christian book and religion. But now she was being told she had to make a choice between God and every other precious thing and person in her life. And so, why did she not like Jesus? Because he is the one forcing her choice. He is the one revealing himself to her as the God whose name is Jealous.
Later in the afternoon, I heard of a quite different response to our Lord's Day worship that morning by another Chinese student who had already confessed Christian faith. He had been talking with his parents the previous week, and they had said they were saddened by his conversion to Christianity. They asked him to call his grandparents to talk to them about, to them about his newfound faith. And being a dutiful son, he obeyed. Now, okay, here's my, here's my racist comment. I, I would prefer to say being an Asian son, he called them. Because I think to be Asian and to be a dutiful son are, are the same thing. I think Americans have invented rebellious sons. You know what I'm saying? Oh, come on, people. Come on. Anyhow, he was a dutiful son, so he obeyed, and he called his grandparents, and they too told him they were saddened by his conversion because as a Christian, he would no longer be able to worship his grandfather after he died. And so our new brother in Christ said he was grateful for the biblical exhortation following the excommunication that Sunday because it had strengthened him to stand against this pressure from his parents and grandparents to choose his family over God. Now, come on, people. Is this not clear to us? It's so clear. But you know why this is clear to us? It's clear to us because he's Chinese. It's clear to us because his family's in China. And who gives a rip about China? (laughs) Now, don't get me wrong. My point is, it's so easy for Christian faith to be American nationalism. And so, who cares whether somebody in China is angry about them, right? But now, let's think about this a second. If in Christ there is neither Asian nor Anglo-Saxon, okay, if we All of us are one in Christ, male, female, slave-free, Asian, Anglo-Saxon. Then all of a sudden, when we see a brother in Christ here who's Chinese saying, I choose Jesus. Okay? We should immediately think of my mama, my papa, my son, my daughter. This isn't an issue of race, ethnicity. It's not an issue of geography. This is the most personal issue that there can be. It's not very hard for us to see the necessity for a new convert, especially one from distant China, to choose Jesus over his parents and grandparents and family. It's much more difficult for us when it's our own father and mother and wife and children that we must turn away from in order to guard our hearts from idolatry. Okay. Are you still here? Okay. Don't give up. Remember the apostle? Well, Stephen tells me it's not the apostle Paul. So, Remember he says, yeah, he knows I'm wrong, but I'm always wrong. <laughs> but you remember he says, I have much more to say to you, but you're, you're yawning and your eyes are drowsing and your ears are getting plugged. Do you remember that in Hebrews? Not written by the apostle Paul. All right. Don't be sluggish on me. Keep going. Here's an added pressure. You feel the tension already, but here's another additional pressure. 
Have you ever wondered how the Canaanites viewed the Israelites when they entered their land? And when they refused to intermarry with the Canaanites, and they refused to worship or even pay allegiance to the Canaanite gods, you ever wondered how did the Canaanites view the Israelites? There were their strict habits of clean and unclean, including sex and clothing and foods and the weaving of cloth and whether they could eat this meat and that meat and this seafood and that seafood. And they were completely clannish. But the clan was their worship centered on a tabernacle. A tabernacle? And then they cut their male babies, making them bleed and cry when they were eight days old. Looking at the people of God and their worship through the eyes of unbelievers across the centuries, we must admit how frequently it's been true that God's people appear repulsive to outsiders. The Egyptians put the Hebrews off in a ghetto. The Canaanites refused to let them pass through their territory. The Romans widely believed the early Christian celebration of the Lord's Supper was a secret cannibalistic rite. And Wycliffe and his fellow believers were called lollards or mutterers. Biblical churches today should expect the same. Few things today are more liable to raise accusations of cult from nominal Christians and unbelievers than church discipline applied to the family members of a Christian home. To the unbeliever's mind, stupefied by postmodernism, all he knows is that Christians believe in conservative family values. And so when the man of God supports the elders of his church excommunicating his son from the Lord's Supper, the family table, He's flabbergasted. He thought family was the ultimate commitment of Christians. And now this. Of course he thinks cult. And of course he begins warning anyone who will listen. Choosing God over our family members often takes the form of submitting to the church's discipline of our loved ones. And when this happens, we know other members of our extended family and friends from liberal evangelical churches hearing of the discipline and of our support of it will not be able to understand and will whisper to one another about our church being a cult. They will all agree that our support of the church's discipline of our family member is proof positive that we are no longer able to think for ourselves and we need deprogramming. With churches all around us who agree that church discipline that separates family members is cultish, the pressures against our choosing God over our family members are horrendous. Think of how members of our extended families, whether family value evangelicals or unbelievers, would view the father who removes his adult son from his household because of the son's apostasy and blasphemy. When the dad wasn't present, they'd say they thought being a Christian was all about loving people. Isn't that what Jesus did? He loved people. 
They'd say the father was just towing the party line over at that church of his, and he needs electroshock therapy. They'd talk about how they pitied the other kids in the home, robbed of their brother because of their father's rigidity and insecurity. So now you feel the tension building, right? We didn't need tension when it came to choosing between God and our wife, our husband, our son, and our daughter. That's hard already. And then you add in this pressure of, well, you're going to be called a cult. You have to choose between the elders' discipline of your children and and your, your precious children or your husband or your wife, you know. And then this, more pressure. There's another pressure most of us will feel, and this pressure is more sneaky. This is particularly true for those of us who have only recently come to understand and cling to God's promises concerning our households. The individualism of American culture tries to rob us of these promises, but if our eyes are open, we will note that promises such as the following are throughout Scripture. And this is from Deuteronomy 7.9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. God's covenant promises to us flow through our children. And they form the cornerstone of our work as fathers. We cling to them in our work. Rejecting the individualistic approach to Christian faith and child-rearing that denies God's habit of working, his promise of working through the family to build his church. This is the why you have a verse like this in the New Testament. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. You can argue about what it actually means. But one thing it's clear it means is that there's, there's like spiritual stuff going on in the family, in the home, right? Among American Christians, whether the authority structure of their marriage and family life is matriarchal, mother rule, or patriarchal, father rule, family values are up there with democracy and free market capitalism. We believe in marriage, motherhood, apple pie, and children. And much of our support of conservative politicians is tied to our commitment to conservative family values. Combine our support for family values with our hope in God's covenant promises to our children, and we see how easily we may be enticed to refuse to allow the elders of our church to discipline our son and daughter who have chosen the idols of the Canaanites we live among. Over God. But God promised to be a God to my children. I can't turn my back on my own flesh and blood. Listen, dear father, listen, dear mother, and listen carefully. Family values start with God the Father Almighty. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And he is a jealous God who will not share his glory with another. The first family is not the president's family. 
And it's not your family or mine. It is God's family. The first household is not the White House or the pastor's house. It is God's household of faith, the church of the living God. The first father is not me and it's not you, but it is God the Father Almighty. And so we must teach our sons and daughters that they are to love their heavenly father with all their heart, all their mind, and all their soul. And yes, they are also to love and honor and obey us. But God is to hold first place in their hearts. In the priorities of their love and obedience, we are far, far below God. And I've been waiting my whole life to say this one. Their mother, too, is far, far below God. <laughs> now, you're wondering why have you been waiting to say your life. Well, remember, it's... it's Come on, it's, it's apple pie and fatherhood. No, it's apple pie and motherhood, right? You know that family values are just as popular in matriarchies as they are in patriarchies. Okay, a little secret of the church that a lot of people don't know. Listen. The Father Almighty must reign supreme in the affections and commitment and loyalty of his sons and daughters if his covenant is to continue to a thousand generations of their descendants. Is this truth prominent in your curriculum for your sons and daughters? Is it prominent in your wife's homeschooling curriculum? You are to teach your children that you, their earthly father, must decrease and he must increase. Right? In other words, you must teach your children that only God is God. And you, their beloved father, most certainly are not God. Nor are you ever to displace God in their love and their allegiance and their obedience. How better to teach this precious truth than to confess your sins to your family and ask their forgiveness. Pop the balloon of your great dignity as the Christian father. Or maybe more to the point, pop the myth your dear wife is inculcated in your children. That daddy is the best daddy in the world and they should adore him. Bunk and double bunk. They should only adore God. Yes, of course, your dear wife means well. But calling your children to worship their father is destructive of the Christian faith. Jesus put it bluntly, telling us that only God is good. Like every other father who has ever been born, you are not good. And if you live in honest self-knowledge, you know your wife is perfectly aware of your badness. (laughs) I mean, it's like, (laughs) come on, guys, a little reality here, you know? She knows that you put your pants on one leg at a time in the morning and you take them off one leg at a time in the evening. And that's a circumlocution for all the things you're happy I'm not talking about. 
Don't let your wife fool your children. Only God is good. Only God is worthy of our worship. And we are to teach our children to love him and him alone with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength. Do you see how this reorders today's Christian homes and marriages? It is not sufficient to make a Christian home simply to put a man and a woman at the center of the home as husband and wife, father and mother, rather than two homosexual men or two lesbian women. It's not enough to make a Christian home simply to stay faithful to our wife and not abandon her and our children for younger flesh. It's not enough to make a Christian home simply to belong to a conservative Christian church and to have our children a Christian school or to homeschool them. It's not enough to read the Bible and pray each evening in family devotions to have our children a Wednesday night Awana program. It's not enough for our children to know the children's catechism, Luther's small catechism, or the Westminster shorter catechism. A Christian home is made by a father who teaches his children, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And we must love the Lord our God with all our hearts and with all our souls and with all our might. God is a jealous God who will no more share his glory with a Christian father who promotes family values and claims God's covenant promises than he will share his glory with an idol. Many a wife is an idol to her husband. Many a husband is an idol to his wife. Many a father is an idol to his son. And many a son is an idol to his father. The most tender relations known to man are family blood relations. And yet, God is first over all. And no claiming of covenant promises or appeal to family values should ever be used to trump his jealousy for our worship, love, and obedience. And so as the jealousy of God leads to our teaching our children that their father is not God and that he's only a sinful man as they are also, we must then turn around and require that our children honor their father and mother because God has delegated his fatherly authority to us for their well-being. And did you just see what happened there? You know, I'm trying to push down dad because God is jealous. All right, are you with me? Now I'm pushing up dad. Why? Because God is jealous. And he has placed his fatherhood in the head of the home, the father. Isn't this strange? And that's why it's the humble father who disciplines his children. Not the proud father. He won't do it because he thinks he's more important than God. But the minute you realize that God is a jealous God, then you are jealous for his reputation and his honor and his authority that resides in you. See this? Isn't this weird? Do you get the... It's weird, right? You feel that. Okay, now listen. Immediately after we have taught our children that only God is good and worthy of our greatest commitment and love and that family values don't trust covenant keeping, we must also teach our children as God's representative in their life. Remember, there's no authority but given by God. The husband's the head of the wife and of the home. They must honor and obey their own human father and mother. And this is no small thing. We 
fathers stand in the place of the Father Almighty. He is the one who has dignified us with the name Father. And we must be zealous to protect the honor due our name by virtue of that name Father having originated with God himself. In the Old Testament, there's a terribly grave command. This is in Deuteronomy 21, beginning with verse 18. If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, quote, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Unquote. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove the evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. And so do you see who has the responsibility to expose the rebellious son among the people of God? His father and his mother, his own flesh and blood, they are to, quote, seize him and bring him out to the elders, unquote. They are to serve as witnesses against him, accusing him of the capital crimes of being stubborn and rebellious, quote, unquote. They are to publicly testify against him that he is not obeying them, and that he is, quote, a glutton and a drunkard, unquote. And they are to do all this knowing full well the consequences, of obeying this command of God, and that it will be their beloved and precious son, bone of their bone and flesh of their flesh, will be executed by the people of God, by the men of the city. Now, why would God command fathers and mothers to do such a thing? He commands it because the Father's authority is God the Father Almighty's authority. And so the son who defies his father is defying God the Father Almighty. And our God is a jealous God. Concerning love, God will not tolerate any competitors for first place in our hearts. Even if those competitors are our closest family members, no one must come between us and him. We must be wholehearted in our fidelity to him. We must love him with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength. Now you see where this is headed, right? Fathers and mothers are to teach our sons and daughters that we, what? That we love God more than we love them. Indeed, that we love God more than we love their mother, which is to say we love God more than we love ourselves. All other homes are built on sinking sand. Now, one final example from Scripture. You remember how the sons of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai prevailed upon Aaron to build them an idol in the form of a golden calf. Their Baal supplanted God in the affections of his people, and seeing their idolatry and burning in his wrath, God sent Moses down the mountain to punish his people. And do you remember the specifics of the punishment? Here's the account. This is from Exodus 32. Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi 
gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man what? Kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. And so the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed. About 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, dedicate yourselves today to the Lord, for every man has been against his what? And you'd think it would be brother, right? Because that's what it said earlier, but this time it's not. Every man has been against his son. His son. And against his brother. In order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. You know, we'd we'd prefer to pass over this account without thinking carefully about it. But we must not do so. Christian father, learn the lesson God is teaching you here. He is a jealous God. And it is this jealousy that commanded the Levites to choose his glory over the lives of their own sons and brothers. This is the reason God blessed the Levites. Their killing of their own flesh and blood proved he had first place in their hearts. And on this, Calvin comments, For to us God speaks when he swears by his holy name that he will not suffer his glory to be transferred to idols. And when he declares that he is a jealous God, taking vengeance to the third and fourth generation upon all sins, and more especially on this one, which is idolatry. This is the sin on account of which Moses, being inflamed by the Spirit of God, ordered the Levites to go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor, unquote. We remember how God commanded Abraham, commended Abraham for his resolve to obey God and sacrifice his son. You remember this? Abraham's commanded to take his son and sacrifice him, and Abram takes his son and is ready to kill his son because it was commanded by God. And then God commended him for this. And this is what it says in Genesis 22, 16 and 17. God said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Our families... Our own brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, must never come between us and our Heavenly Father. He alone is to have first place in our affections. He alone is to sit on the throne of our heart. He will not tolerate any competition because jealous is his name. Now listen, people, I know, we're done. But those of, those of you who have been here a while, you know that now I could tell the story of my father removing me from his home as a young man. 
And everybody who's been here a while has heard this story. And I'm telling you, he removed me from the home, and all he said to me is, Tim, I need to say something to you. Saturday morning, and he looked at me, and he said, Tim, you're not honoring God. You may not live in my home. No drama. Just tragedy. And so I left. And I did not in the slightest diminish my love and affection for my father at that moment. But from that moment on, my love and affection for my father went through the roof. And it took God, well, it didn't take God, it took me quite a while to stop swapping pigs. You won't be surprised to know I moved to California. But that was the beginning of my salvation. Not the beginning, but you know what I'm saying. And never, never did my father love me as much as that moment. And so, you know, you can hear this and you can think, oh, yeah, all his kids are out of his home. You know, it's easy for him to preach. I say, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. This is our God. This is who he is. His name is Jealous. This is God. This is the only true God. This is who he is. And fathers that love their sons and daughters and wives will love him first with all their being. All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. We thank you that you are jealous and that you will not pander to us. We thank you that you do not reveal your love without your holiness. We thank you, Father, that you do not submit to us, but that you demand that we submit to you. We thank you that you draw us with your fatherly tender love, knowing our frame, that we are made of dust. Father, I pray this morning for fathers here who are allowing their wives and their children to turn them from God. We pray that you will reestablish your authority in those homes and that we as fathers in this household of faith will have faith that you work through sinful men and that we are able by your spirit to forget the past and to give ourselves to the present. We thank you that now is the day of salvation. We pray that we will repent now and that we will live by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.